Hello and welcome to the Wild Enrichment Podcast. My name is Kyle Banton-Jones and I'll be your host. The Wild Enrichment Podcast is a show about animal welfare, training, enrichment, and everything in between. Each episode, we will be exploring concepts surrounding behavioral husbandry and the ever-advancing field of animal welfare, from interviews with real animal care professionals to educational episodes about new concepts in animal care. This is the Wild Enrichment Podcast. Enjoy. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Wild Enrichment Podcast. Uh, today, I'm joined with special guest, uh, Dr. Jake Vizi, and he is the director of uh, Care for the Rare. Uh, Jake, uh, thank you so much uh, for making the time today. Hey, no problems. Glad to be here. Yeah, I, I, I'm very excited to to have you on. You have a, such a diverse um, and uh, like sort of wide ranging background and and uh, wealth of experience. So I think uh, we'll get into some really interesting stuff today. Do you want to sort of give people an idea of your your background and your sort of uh, history in the in the industry? Yeah, well, I mean, it it depends how far back, how long we've got, and how far back you <laughs> want me to go because I I kind of decided. Uh, about the age of three or four, what I wanted to do. Uh, and that I just fell in love with rhinos. Mm. Dinosaurs were my gateway into conservation. Mm -hmm. I was obsessed with dinosaurs. Triceratops was my favorite dinosaur. I knew they were extinct. I was aware that rhinos were becoming endangered and I didn't want them to go the same way. So that's how I got into to, to conservation. And uh, yeah, so I, I spent nearly 10 years in academia um obviously studying zoology and i did my undergraduate research at five zoos in the uk looking at uh, the effect of uh facility design and social structure on the behavior of of captive tigers um i was meant to be doing a phd on black rhino but the, the population i was due to be studied uh was actually just was decimated by uh poaching uh, and I found myself a, a, a slight loose end and ended up being paid uh, by the RSPCA to undertake uh, the master's degree course at Edinburgh University in uh, applied animal behavior and animal welfare science, which was the first animal welfare course uh, on the planet, as, as far as I'm aware. And we were one of the, the early intakes. I think that was year two or three. Uh, and I did my research on... The differences between captive and wild giraffe behavior and what conclusions we could draw for that and you know just really thinking about you know what is it a giraffe can miss about opportunities it's never experienced and why and uh we you know we revealed some really interesting things on that but also challenged some of the presumptions that um simply replicating nature is the route to 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 good welfare and that it was the start of a journey in, in really analyzing that you know nature is an excellent reference point but in in terms of optimizing welfare and captivity it's not necessarily uh, a, a blueprint in in the sense that not everything animals experience in nature is equally important to them mm. and certainly not everything animals experience in nature is good for their welfare either so that was the start of what has now been, you know, a 20 plus year journey and developing techniques to differentiate uh, welfare priorities, um, you know, uh, from the, the behavioral ecology of species. And, and, and we'll no doubt get into that. Uh, 
But mm. anyway, when, once I finished my uh, master's, I ended up doing a PhD in behavioral ecology. So it was actually answering a, a question that Darwin had first raised, you know, a hundred and something years previously, looking at why passerines lay the number of eggs they do. We know they can rear more chicks than the number of eggs they lay. Uh, so there was something constraining clutch size. Mm. Uh, and we looked at the, the effect of clutch size on predation risk in uh, in, in passerines, and we discovered uh, it wasn't the mass of the eggs that they were carrying that was reducing their ability to evade predators. It was, in fact, they were diverting amino acids from their flight muscles to egg production, and that was making them progressively less able to escape predators. So that was a really interesting um, kind of, you know, part to be part of that journey that Darwin had first, mm. you know, the premise of evolutionary theory is survival of the fittest, maximal reproduction, et cetera, et cetera. And to, to answer a question that Darwin had first raised was, was it was a fun thing to be involved in. Uh, and then I started uh, as uh, head of animal management and conservation safari park in the uk and uh, was involved in fundamentally redeveloping that over the course of about uh, 10 years before i moved to canada take up a post uh, at, at calgary zoo as director of animal uh, care and uh, conservation research and uh, uh, you know had a very exciting time there uh, transforming a, a lot of the way we do things there and obviously dealing with the, the floods the those of you who don't know about it the, the zoo flooded mm. in 2013 yeah um and then moved back to the uk i was involved in setting up a, a number of new wildlife parks uh, and previously been involved in uh producing the development plan for yorkshire wildlife park back in the day and uh and you know really kind of expanded that um that consultancy uh, element, because you know, one of my key passions is bringing this applied ethology to facility design, and there's only so much scope for that when you're based within an organisation. Uh, and then I had an opportunity to move back to Canada, and for you know, for a variety of reasons, we, you know, our family took the decision to do that to to the Vancouver Aquarium as the MD of, of the aquarium at a time of, you know, very interesting time uh, um, there before uh, kind of COVID changed the world and, mm. you know, pivoted back to doing what uh, I'm doing now, which is, uh, you know, helping both zoos, wildlife parks and uh, animal welfare NGOs really kind of optimize their animal welfare across their operation through not just facility design and master planning, but also through, um, you know, developing, you know, uh, aligned strategic mission and, and, and mm. vision that, that really, you know, entrenches animal welfare as, as a fundamental premise of, of, of what they do. Mm. And so overall, Care for the Rare is... Um, kind of aligns my two passions in conservation and animal welfare. And I think, you know, I, I, I see way too often they are separate disciplines and often yeah. in conflict. And, you know, absolutely, there's been 
talk of compassionate conservation, which to me kind of implies let's do conservation and minimize, you know, welfare harms, which is great. But I actually think we need to go a step further, particularly for zoos. I think this is the, the unique um, niche of, of zoos, wildlife parks and aquariums is to actually have animal welfare as the foundation mm -hmm. uh, of conservation. And we'll, we'll we'll no doubt talk about that a little bit more, but that's the that's a high level kind of synopsis as I can get it down to. Yeah, yeah, no, that's uh, such an interesting background, and and coming at sort of uh, the conservation spheres as well as the animal welfare spheres. Um, just a, a couple sort of questions about um, some of the stuff you just you just mentioned. Um, I'd love to. I I de I definitely think the sort of um, idea of trying to replicate nature, especially in exhibit design is, is something that, that I think a lot about and how it can be sort of taken too far. So I'd love to hear about maybe an example that you have or, or some of your thoughts about yeah. replicating so nature. I think, and, and this is particularly true in North America. Um, I think there is a desire to replicate the natural aesthetic. Mm. And there is very little serious attention to the to the functionality of environments from a natural perspective. Uh, and, and frankly, I think it's to to the detriment uh, of animals. We, I, I say we, it's not something that you know. And, and there's this focus on this immersive environment. We hear it time and time again. It's the mm. it was the big thing, you know back in the day but actually the emphasis is on the visitor it's immersing the visitor and kind of breaking down those those barriers and i think all of those things are important in kind of creating empathy and creating engagement but let's not kid ourselves the fact that we can make visitors feel like the environments are more natural does not necessarily mean um the the welfare of animals is improved and i think Another thing that we're, we're very bad at in terms of facility design uh, is developing performance criteria for animal. You know, the whole kind of basis of this podcast, Enrichment, is, is arguably um, a, a, a discipline based on making up for the deficit in mm -hmm. facility design. Because if we designed Anim environments for animals that were complete and holistic and provided provided them with everything they needed there would be no need for enrichment because the the environment mm -hmm. you know would, would provide animals with what what we need and i think i just see it too often the um people come in they design a facility it looks great in the renderings it looks great in the models and then we spent, you know, people such as yourself and, you know, animal care professionals spend the next 20 or 30 years of that piece of infrastructure's um, life cycle making up for the fundamental deficiencies of that habitat. I see it time and time and time again. It's, 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 it's almost universal. And we, we've, we've lacked up until now that mechanism to identify the performance criteria for animals and that's that's that was the basis by which we developed the 
the Animal Welfare Priority Identification System or, or ORPIS to, to kind of redress that balance. Yeah, yeah, that's that's super interesting. And I think, you know, uh, a lot of the time, as you said, like the, the designs look good on paper, but it's hard to actually uh, account for the amount of complexity that some of these animals actually need in their environment. And so I'd love to hear more about that sort of how yeah, you come well, to these. I mean, even complexity, you know, mm. how complexity is good, choice is good. And and they're just far too um, broad brush of statements. Mm -hmm. So the example I always give when I go to the supermarket and I'm confronted with 200 different varieties of toothpaste, that's complexity, that's choice. Two things mm. that we think are good. Mm. It doesn't enrich my life. It annoys yeah. me. And I don't think I'm the only one in that. <laughs> but it's it's like, you know, we when we talk about things like complexity, we need to ensure that the complexity is meaningful and appropriate for the species, not complexity for complexity's sake. When we tick mm -hmm. that complexity box in a way that is not tailored to the fundamental needs and priorities of the species, it's enriching us as animal carers and not the animals. And it's the same with choice. The choice between a feeding trough that's six meters one way or 15 meters in the other, it's not a meaningful choice. Mm. There's no, you know, consequences of making a bad decision. And therefore, that choice has no value whatsoever, in, in my view. And so they're just two examples of where we need to, you know, have a far more systematic, you know, there are a bunch of kind of buzz phrases and topics that we assume to be synonymous with good welfare and it's everything from training enrichment uh, complexity choice even healthcare and 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 then so there's this assumption that th these are things by how which we judge welfare you know simply by the act of doing them and we don't spend enough time really assessing the the value of those activities and those endeavors and certainly we can pursue them to the point that they actually have uh, a corrosive effect on welfare and so at, at the foundation of everything we do is developing this uh this high level understanding of what matters to an animal and that becoming the basis by which we do deliver uh you know targeted prioritized welfare uh solutions yeah yeah that's that's a a very interesting sort of take and a and a like a very you know think like accounting for the future a lot and the actual animals experience throughout its lifetime which is you know a really a really great way to to frame your thinking as opposed to just sort of looking at this static habitat that you know looks good on paper but but not really taking into account the animal's needs. How, how do you go about you as sort of deciding on those priorities and like, how do you think about that? Yeah. So, so the, the, the actual, the ORPIS process came about as a result, like I say, I'd, one thing I haven't sort of touched on is, is I've worked quite extensively in Africa with, so with elephants, rhino, giraffe, and, and in particular bongo, uh, mountain bongo in, in, in Kenya. And, um, so I had had experience working in the wild with elephants and fresh out of completing my PhD, I was responsible for a group of elephants that 
it was very clear to me that we needed a, a new facility. And this is in the early 2000s when, you know, is, issues with Asian elephants in particular were, were related to foot care. The solution to foot care problems was training uh, and very much hands-on free contact management. And um, it, it shaped everything. It shaped the sociality of these animals. It shaped how we manage them. And, and so the ability to provide training, and this is a great example, the ability to get bloods from your elephants and take care of the foot problems, which at that time were universal, were considered benchmarks of good welfare. And so we were at a time where we were designing habitats around the treatments for the soot problems without actually designing in the solutions. And, you know, I made the case that we needed a very different approach. We needed to design around the herd rather than the individual. And, I mean, you know, back, you'll be way too young to remember this, but, but back then, elephants were separated at night in some facilities they were chained, some facilities they were mm. kept separate. And this was based on the fact that elephants used to fight over food at night. The reason they used to fight over food because elephants were given free meals a day because that's what the keepers ate. So the elephants had the same. So for the first time in evolutionary history, we concentrated food in time and space. And this social structure that was dependent upon food at low density, at low quality, that can't be competed over amongst other elephants, we set them up to fail. And this had a whole cascading impact upon how we manage them. And so that this is an example of that failure to understand the behavioral ecology of this species combined with a failure to address the issues of ultimately poor facility design were condemning our elephants to poor welfare. And we needed a fundamental pivot from that. But the challenge is, I find the, the, the zoo community is perhaps understandably very conservative in facility design. And uh, when you look at doing something that's never been done before, that is not just kind of an incremental tweak on what's gone in the past, mm. that is fundamentally different, um, it can be very difficult to win, win that argument to, to, you know, to, to pivot from, from the norm. And we see it. I just see it in zoo design consistently. The first thing people do when they're building a new facility is they go and visit other facilities. They don't mm. sit down and talk about the fundamental needs of species. So that was what Orpis was about. It was about developing this evidential basis by which we could pivot from, uh, you know, the status quo. And it's the 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 theory behind it is is relatively simple. The practice of delivering it is 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 unfortunately by necessity far more complex and involved. But but in essence, Orpis is based on the relationship between uh, evolution and animal welfare. Now, behaviors and cognitive processes that are of high evolutionary significance will be highly and or more frequently motivated. It's how evolution shapes. Uh, animals to do things that help them reproduce and survive. It makes the things that help animals uh, reproduce and survive highly motivated for. And, uh, and so as a result, if animals are frustrated in their desire to express behaviors or cognitive processes that are of high evolutionary significance, 
the welfare impact will be broadly proportional to the evolutionary significance. So now it's not as straightforward as that, as, as most things never are. We have to also consider the origin of the stimulus. So the motivation to sleep or to seek food comes from within the animal. So that motivation is going to manifest depending on the animal's physiological state, irrespective of the environment the animal finds itself in. Whereas the motivation for an animal to evade, for example, a predatory attack mm -hmm. is dependent upon an external stimulus. Both of those two examples, so uh, seeking food and evading a predator, are of high evolutionary significance, but one is dependent entirely upon an external trigger. And so if, if as we should, remove that external trigger in a captive environment, that is to say we remove predation from uh, captive environments, we can be quite relaxed about the welfare impacts of uh, prey species never having to evade a predator. How, and I always give this caveat because it's important that people understand the, the nuance here. That's not the same as prey species not needing to feel they could escape a predator. So mm. a, a life of a, of a good zebra in a captive environment will be one in which it never has to run away from a lion, for example, but is in an environment and, and a social circumstances where it feels confident in its ability right. that if it could, if, if it was forced to evade a predatory attack, it has, you know, it has the scope to do so. So that's the kind of the, 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 the connection between evolution and, and welfare. And what we do is we, we convene a panel of experts in each species. And that includes uh, people who work with the species in captivity, people who've carried out research on the species welfare, and people who work with the species in the field. And there's, a, there's an online platform, and all of these experts assess each behavior and cognitive process according to 16 criteria that give us insights into the evolutionary significance and motivational origins of these behaviors and all of this data is a huge data set i think the the one we recently completed for orangutans it, it creates seventy thousand individual points of data all of that gets consolidated it gets passed through a, a series of algorithms and what cascades out of that are a list of welfare priorities and the other really great thing about it is it enables us to compare directly cognitive processes and also uh, uh, animal behaviors. So we the, the process enables us to to, to rank those uh, uh, together and, and amongst each other. And the, the findings that we've been getting out of this have been, you know, genuinely, uh, you know, a, a revelation. And they are now beginning to feed in into some very transformative ways of, of how we go about caring for certain species and and in particular designing for their for their habitats mm -hmm. so so once you have these these data points and and these sort of priorities like do you have an example of like how that gets sort of like implemented into the environment uh yeah. without, without having yeah. to add so i'll I give you perhaps it's actually the, one of the earliest examples, but 
it's it's potentially one of the most interesting. So we, uh, Helsinki Zoo, uh, were looking to build a new tiger facility. So we undertook a uh, an office assessment for ammo tigers. I've worked, like I say, my my undergraduate research is on captive tiger behavior. Uh, I've been responsible for tigers for decades. I, you know, I had a feel where I thought this was going to go. Um, but even I, who kind of knew the process and had, you know, extent, you know, decades-long experience sort of species, was surprised by the outcome. But as was everyone else who took part in the process, but there wasn't a single person who took part in it that didn't think, how did we miss this? This was so obvious. And this is what's exciting about it. So I'll tell you what it is. So if we look at how we care for species like tigers, but other big predators as well, there is this kind of assumption that, you know, they're big, scary animals. We recognize them as predators. And we recognize that, you know, feeding is an enjoyable uh, part of their lives. And so in our desire to acknowledge their, our, our understanding of their behavioral ecology and in a desire to enrich their lives, there has been a tendency to feed tigers far more often than they would be fed in the wild. Now, in order to avoid these tigers becoming morbidly obese, we feed them smaller meals. And that's great. So we have all of this training. We've even got chow-based diets that are perfectly nutritionally balanced that lend themselves really well to all sorts of enrichment and training-based feeding. And yet still we have pacing tigers. And it's because we never understood the fundamental needs of the species. So when we undertook the Orpis assessment, we discovered that actually tra intentional travel and gathering information was more important to tigers than hunting. And at first it's like, what? That kind of doesn't make any sense. But actually, if you think about it, in nature, if a tiger stumbles across a buffalo carcass or steals a carcass off a leopard or, you know, whatever has is presented or is even you know, or is even given a meal of sufficient size and this includes in captive settings if it is given a meal of sufficient size size its motivation to hunt and to seek hunting opportunities is eliminated because it it has it has the end point of manifesting uh, uh, that behavior whereas a tiger's motivation to gather information and to maintain its territory never disappears because it is so fundamental to everything that, that a tiger is. It is its mechanisms to secure reproductive opportunities. Uh, it's the size of a tiger's territory is proportional to prey density. So they need to understand prey distribution and density in real time to maintain an appropriate uh, you know, uh, a territory of appropriate size. They need to constantly protect against other tigers coming into that territory. And that requirement and that desire is a chronic one that is there regardless of the nutritional state of a tiger. Whereas its desire to go hunting 
is dependent upon its stomach distension. And so because we never truly understood the behavioral ecology of, of tigers, we assumed that hunting was important and that, um, you know, food was enriching. And so we wanted to eke that out as, 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 as more as frequently as possible. And so we set tigers up to be never truly full to the extent that they are in the wild, to never experience that true stomach distension that needs, you know, a tiger to eat up to 20% of its body weight uh, in, in a given meal that is required to stretch the stomach to shut that motivation down. And so by attempting to enrich tigers whilst not fully understanding what mattered to them, we actually made their welfare worse. We set them up to be permanently motivated to look for food in an environment in which they're permanently prevented from satisfying that demand. And it's why tigers pace. The, the, the nature of animal stereotypies is very informative in terms of where, you know, the, the frustrations come from. And we're not seeing frustrated hunting behaviors. You know, in the same way that pigs, we see frustrated rooting behaviors. We're not seeing frustrated hunting behaviors we're seeing frustrated travel behaviors and one of the other really interesting facts that that is is building into this whilst we have compressed the habitat size of of captive tigers dramatically they can often locomote for more than they do in nature mm. which is and despite the fact that there is no need no purpose and no opportunity no real fundamental opportunity for locomotion the fact that they still locomote albeit often through pacing at a very high level is another indicator that this intentional travel is is fundamental to them and, and we're in the early days of of some research into this but we are seeing that a lot of these wide-ranging animals are actually highly active in captive environments even even if we take out, you know, stereotypies, they are surprisingly active relative to their um, their their compatriots in the wild, and that this so much so that this could actually be a sign of poor welfare, and so we make assumptions about things like activity that they're always good, and actually I think we're just beginning to open the door, the particularly travel without purpose and intent may actually be a sign of poor welfare because after all it's got it's you know it's it's very very it's on the cusp of being stereotypic mm. and even if that travel is not stereotypic in form in the actual mechanics of it it's definitely stere often stereotypic in distribution in the habitats when we look at habitats from satellite images, we can see paths. They are, you know, even if the even if it's not obviously pacing, the journeys animals are undertaking are often quite stereotypic. But this is very early days. We, we're still working on on the on the data on that. But it's just one of the the, the sort of cascading um, threads that we're that, that we're pulling on that has come out from from this research and and what i should also say is the the tigers was the first real um example of this significance of intentional travel that that jumped out on us but we're seeing it in every species we're assessing uh and 
the the and so we we've developed the the uh, what we're calling the the meaningful locomotion project. Uh, it's 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 a project that is intending to connect journeys of biologically appropriate lengths to chosen and motivated meaningful outcomes. And uh, yeah, that's it's it's. Mm. I, I think this is, in in my opinion, this is the next big. Um, how can I put it? it, it, it I, I I think this is to me all of the challenges that that captive animals face. Um, this is arguably the, the biggest unifying. Uh, uh, theme amongst them, in, in 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 my opinion. Yeah, that's that's fascinating. So how how would you sort of like solve for meaningful locomotion in that sort of tiger example? And I'd love to hear sort of like how you think this purposeful locomotion, meaningful locomotion, is 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 going to sort of transform what habitats look like and how we care for them. So, well, I, I, I just start by kind of reinforcing the the kind of the premise and the theory behind this because it is bigger than the tiger, right? So this, this is relevant to, I believe, all species, you know, whether it's whether it's an elephant, a polar bear, an orangutan, I believe we universally constrain habitat size. Uh, and I think the mechanism by which this impacts welfare is is arguably the removal of opportunities for meaningful locomotion. So let, let's just talk about a, a little bit of the, the sort of the background to that. Now, why I think meaningful locomotion is, is so important, other than the fact that it's constantly jumping out as the biggest non-physiological it's, it's the highest ranked welfare priority that isn't a physiological necessity in every orpis assessment we've done regardless of species but irrespective of that if you consider anything an animal desires or wants to remove from its life or whatever travel is the precursor to motivational equilibrium. If an animal wants to secure food, it moves towards it. If it wants to secure water, it moves toward it. If it wants to find shelter, it moves toward it. If it wants to find, you know, social interaction, it moves towards it. Equally, if it wants to get away from a negative social interaction or a positively or, or a possibly you know, risky situation, it moves away from it. So travel is this big precursor. It's the bridge between the animal's expectations and its goals. It's the universal bridge. And if we look at how animals spend time and energy, and when animals spend a lot of time and energy on things in nature, that's a sign they're of high evolutionary significance because animals don't waste either. They don't waste mm. time and they don't waste energy. And we see that travel is energetically demanding and we see that animals spend, you know, a, a lot of time doing it. So it, it's, it, it, it really is this, this fundamental priority that I think is, is universal uh, amongst species. But what we've done in captive management, we've, we've, we focus, I think, way too much on solving animals' problems. We present them the end point. We, you know, we build dens for animals. We, 
you know, we, 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 you know, we, we present them with the solutions and we haven't put enough attention on this kind of this bridge, this travel, this precursor to get to achieve those solutions themselves. And that's ultimately what we're trying to, trying to, to, to rectify in providing opportunities for animals to undertake meaningful journeys of their their choosing to biologically pro appropriate destinations or opportunities uh, 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 of of their choosing, and, and that's what we're trying to do. So we are we are now two years into development work of a of a of a tiger habitat in Germany with. Uh, to collabor collaboration between uh, Care for the Rare, Four Paws International, and uh, the Open University's Department of Animal Computer Interaction. And uh, it, it's something that we, we, there's a slight embargo on how much we kind of can, can say about this mm. until this proof of concept is, is, is completed. And we're hoping it's going to be complete in 2024. Um, but essentially, it's a facility that, that it's a it's a it's a natural landscape. It's a bam in this instance, it's a bamboo forest with forest trails, and ultimately, those forest trails connect to physical destinations that have that are distinct from each other, that have variable um, opportunities linked to feeding and sociality. Uh, that can migrate amongst these uh, specific destinations. And the journey between these destinations is one that is changes based on the decisions of animals that becomes, that deliver journeys of distances that are comparable to those made in the wild that are reinforced by multi-sensory cues from mm. scent to sound, to, to, to visual cues. So that not only are we providing, and this is one of the other things, it's like all of these things are holistic, everything connects. And the thing that glues everything together, the things that bind everything together is increasingly we're seeing is, is intentional travel. By providing these opportunities and these cues and these choices for intentional travel, we are providing choices. We're providing contingency, goal-seeking behaviors. We're also providing opportunities for tigers to learn. We're providing opportunities for meaningful choices. So they may have a choice to, I'm, I'm thirsty, but it, I know it's a four kilometer walk to water. But I'm hearing a signal that in based on my learning is a 25% chance that I might be being there might be food available in that specific destination. That becomes a cognitive demand. It becomes a meaningful choice because it has consequences. Mm. It's also the opportunity for tigers and animals to get things wrong. You know, yeah. failure is an important part of welfare. If everything's good, then nothing's good providing tigers the opportunities to make bad decisions is what makes those what makes decisions and choices meaningful and and equally we're providing these opportunities for tigers to learn and navigate so all of these things all of these really important things things that we we saw were important in in the assessment the only way to deliver them is not in isolation it's to knit them together as part of this holistic framework and and intentional travel really is the glue that, that, that binds all of that together.
Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's uh, yeah, that's such an interesting way of uh, you know thinking of that holistic model that has all the inputs that the animal you know needs for their welfare. And 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 touching on those um, welfare paradigms that you feel are holding us back, like you know getting all of you know basically making life maybe too easy without sort of consequences and without, uh, you know, ways for the animal to learn. Uh, I'd love to hear if there's other sort of traditional welfare paradigms that you think are holding us back currently. Well, and okay. I think one of the big ones, and I, and I say this as a, um, as a, as a welfare scientist, I think, I think our obsession with measuring welfare bizarrely mm. is holding us back. And it's because, so one of the things about uh, welfare assessments, there's, there's a few things that we have to kind of to recognize is number one, it's difficult to measure welfare. And in fact, yeah. let's be really clear about it. We don't measure welfare. We measure a series of indicators and make welfare inferences based upon them. Now, the problem is welfare is about how animals feel. It's about the it's about the mental uh, state of an animal, and this isn't reflect. So, this is the view of the majority of welfare scientists. It's the hedonistic conception of animal welfare that animal welfare is exclusively about how animals feel. Now, amongst zoo stakeholders, eighty percent of them consider welfare to be a combination of physical and psychological components. One of the challenges with that, one of the, is the because physical uh, elements that influence welfare, that influence how animals feel, are easier to measure than the psychological ones. They can typically take precedent over them, and that's a problem. And that leads to you know management that uh, overly influence is overemphasizes uh, you know physical paradigms and uh, and disregard the, the psychological components. And, and I think the most egregious example of this was when the American Veterinary Medical Association opposed uh, uh, legislation in California to enable farm animals as a minimum to stand up and turn around and they opposed that on welfare grounds because they felt that farrowing crates for, for for pigs were the most effective way of protecting animals from you know disease and injury which are super measurable super tangible without you know doing that kind of the cost benefit analysis between the you know the profound psychological impacts of essentially living in in, in a coffin and so it's just a bit worth mm. you know i always sort of give that example as you know the the american veterinary medical association is and this was a number of years ago now and i, I hope their, their their positions have changed since but um you know it was this century it's 2008 i believe it was you know that's uh mm. That's a, a serious example of, of how that, that, that kind of disconnect between, you know, fully recognizing that animal welfare is about how animals feel. Now, I am not going to say that physical well-being is irrelevant. Of course it is, but it is only relevant when it starts impacting how animals feel. Mm. So an, an animal with uh, 
an aneurysm that could pop at any minute that might be asymptomatic, has poor health, that at that moment in time, its welfare may be totally fine. And it's important that, that we understand that. Because we are guilty, I think, in this industry, and not just this industry, of a thing called recursion, where we define welfare by how we measure it. So absolutely, health can feed into how an animal feel, as can as can uh, social opportunities, climate, etc. But we've come we've we've come to define welfare by health, and I think you know it's uh, that can be a bit of a problem. And in terms of how welfare measurement is potentially holding us back, if one again. I'm jumping around a little bit here, so apologies. Welfare is difficult to measure. Mm -hmm. um, and if we rely on comparative welfare assessments, for example, to improve facility design, we're comparing the welfare of, let's say, elephants in one habitat versus another, or the same elephants in different habitats. And we measure a bunch of metrics and we make welfare inferences based on that that we hope are accurate now there's a there's a whole bunch of problems with basing uh animal welfare advancement on that and that is the that is the universal focus of animal welfare science pretty much as i see it but the problem with it is number one all of these facilities and management may, regimes may be crap for want mm. of a, a better word and so we're 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 building a foundation around uh sorry we're, we're using a foundation that could be fundamentally flawed and i don't think that is the right kind of foundation from which to be building you know uh you know future uh, animal care facilities so for example uh no penguin habitats provide the opportunity for, for penguins to deep dive there is no mechanism by which we can truly assess the welfare significance of deep diving by comparing behavior in environments where they cannot deep dive. Similarly, polar, polar bears migrating. How can we put a value on the welfare significance of that relying on comparative welfare assessments? We simply can't. Uh, and the other thing is, even when we can detect the influence or, or a correlation between, you know, certain variables, um, identifying the true causal nature of that is really problematic. So we see less stereotypies in bigger enclosures. Now, that, is that because animals want more space or is it because they want more opportunities to seek social isolation from their peers or to get away from visitors or they do they enjoy uh the environmental complexity more and it's and, and and with that greater opportunities for choice all of those things may co-vary with space and unless we actually understand those key elements that are the ones that are driving that change we're never going to be able to truly optimize welfare and that's why as a welfare scientist who you know who cut their teeth on measuring welfare, I took the decision that actually we need to not stop doing that, but I mm. cannot rely on the evidence that is out there because it's insufficient to make the leaps that we need to make. Yeah. And that was why we developed this, this 
uh, evidential-based process to to identify welfare priorities. So it was taking a step out of that traditional um, welfare assessment paradigm, which I think uh, is important, but our over-reliance upon it, I think, is holding mm. us back. Yeah, absolutely. And, and especially in an industry and a science that is developing so quickly, um, it's, it's important to sort of be, you know, understanding our current deficiencies and, and how to sort of prepare your processes for those. And I think that's, yeah, that's something really important to, to think about. Yeah. And like I say, the, the reliance on comparative welfare assessments inevitably results in incremental improvements and, yeah. I, and i think we're at a point where we need things that are fundamentally different our, our tiger habitat is not an incremental tweak on anything that's gone before it's a fundamental paradigm shift you know we are genuinely seeking to um compress the functional complexity of the wild in a way that is relevant to tigers in a space that's far smaller than than it is is in nature but it's still you know of a of a, of a you know a large tiger habitat size now that we would never get to that point hmm. relying on comparative welfare assessments right yeah yeah that's uh yeah really interesting and i'm very excited to see how that uh habitat turns out and to hear more about more about that research it's, it sounds really really interesting um so we, we've talked a lot about, you know, animal welfare, because that's is sort of a, one of your areas of expertise among many, uh, conservation sort of being another uh, big focus of yours. So I'd love to hear how you feel the two are sort of interfacing now and how you think they're going to be sort of like interfacing in the future, especially within a zoo environment. So, I mean, this is, yeah. So... Like I, I, I've always been in a slightly interesting kind of Venn diagram of kind of disciplines in that my, you know, my motivation, my, as I, as I mentioned at the beginning, my, my desire to get into zoos and conservation actually started with, started with this, well, it started with, with conservation. My interest in animals started with conservation. Uh, and it was a conservation crisis that led me to this pivot into animal welfare, which at the time, um, you know, was it was a quite frustration to me. I, I didn't truly appreciate the the value of that course at that time. Uh, it it was for me just um, a, a stopgap uh, between what would have been a, a PhD on on black rhinos. Uh, and but actually, as my time in this community has, has gone on, I've seen zoos uh, criticized on animal welfare. And I'm talking in very general terms. And because I've worked around the world from Asia, Australia to uh, Europe, North America, I'm going to talk in very general terms. And there are definite, obviously, exceptions to hundreds of exceptions to this overarching kind of general trend but I'll, I'll just for for the sake of expediency I'll, I'll stick to that there has been a time where zoos were literally kind of set up for you know public enjoyment uh and then certainly in the uk in the 80s animal welfare became a major cause of concern 
and the, the zoo community kind of took the view that hey everything's fine but by the way we're all about conservation and therefore you can't criticize us for these animals having poor welfare when we're trying to save species and it took the animal welfare stroke anti-zoo lobby a, an inordinate amount of time to figure out that actually zoos weren't doing that much conservation mm. and then zoos kind of pivoted a little bit to say well actually we we do take welfare really seriously this is what we're doing uh, and actually we're about education and it feels like we are there's there's a few things that have gone on since that that shift in the the kind of the 2010s 20 to the to the mid 2010s um the, obviously, there is there is a lot more emphasis on animal welfare. Unfortunately, I think a lot of it is is animal welfare that is demonstrable. So it's the things that we can measure, not necessarily the things that matter to animals. And that's a potential, uh, you know, un, unfair not unfair, an unfortunate consequence of that. And I'll you know, if we get time, we can talk about you know recent research showing that. Um, four species of marine mammals live as long in captivity as they do in the wild, as if to say that is therefore there's no animal welfare issues. And it's it's nonsense. It's absolute nonsense to to use that argument to say there are no issues. Right. But you know, if we get time, we can, we can come back to that. The way I look at it, the, the one, so as someone who works for animal welfare NGOs and zoos and indeed conservation agencies like Kenya Wildlife Service, et cetera, there's just this disconnect. There is, just, you know, I've even had animal welfare people saying, you know what, the minute a species extincts, I'm almost relieved because it's one less group of animals that doesn't have to suffer. And it's mm. kind of like, and I, I think that was a slightly tongue-in-cheek statement, but I get that premise. And when I was taught, you know, I, I was taught by a very eminent um zoologist back in my undergraduate days who was involved in an attempt to reintroduce red squirrels back into Regent's Park just outside London Zoo and he told me how to to identify the squirrels they cut different digits off of their hands and feet oh. and so you know that was obviously and and there was there was this era where animal you know conservation was brutal the difference mm. between conservation and animal welfare is animal welfare cares about the individual animal here and now. Conservation cares about populations now and into the future. And historically, the conservation community said, we don't want animal welfare to be interfering with this. We need to save species. And if we have to sacrifice individuals, if we have to cull invasive species, et cetera, et cetera, then so be it. But I think the thing with zoos is the opportunity we have is by is the fact that we have live animals is we can connect people on an emotional level mm. uh, to individual animals. And what I have learned about the difference between animal welfare and conservation in the public mind is the animal welfare is far more in, in, effective at engaging people than conservation. Conservation engages people's brains. Animal welfare engages people's hearts. When Cecil the lion was, was shot, it mm. was worldwide news. When Marius the giraffe was euthanized, it was worldwide news. When the Saudi gazelle went extinct and the Yangtze river dolphin went extinct, 
there was barely a mention. And that's because conservation is this academic, it's about percentage decline here, gigaton of this, and it's so big and it's all negative and it's just in it's just facts and it sits in people's brains. And we see this in donor income. The, the amount of money that gets given to, you know, as, as residents of Canada and as Canadian citizens, the BCSPCA, I can't remember the exact statistics. So British Columbia Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals generates significantly more income than WWF Canada. Canada's mm. the second biggest country on the planet. It's got a lot of nature. The, it's easier to raise funds rescuing cats and dogs in BC than it is to save species mm -hmm. in the second biggest country uh, on the planet. And it's not just Canada. We see the similar trends in the UK. I was a director of Save the Rhino International back in the day. On a good year, we would generate, a, you know, anything like a tenth for the amount of money that the donkey sanctuary in Cornwall would generate. Oh, yeah. And so, and so, and I don't criticize any of that. I think this is a missed opportunity. Mm. All conservation issues involve suffering. And I think the zoo-based conservation community has a unique opportunity to engage people in the stories of individual animals, to engage people emotionally, that creates kind of fertile ground in which we can um, engage them more intellectually in conservation solutions and deliver behavior change. If someone falls in love with a polar bear because of the story it's experienced and how it was forced into, you know, feeding off a rubbish dump because its sea ice had melted and it was going to be shot. And if they can fall in love with that animal and understand that story and then understand how their behavior mm. has influenced that outcome, that becomes a very powerful trajectory that is, is unique to zoos. You know, and we can get on to the whole captive breeding, uh, which I hope we do, because I think that's a, a wildly misunderstood uh, area. But our ability to engage people, I think we are in a unique position to do that. But we can only do that if we are seen to effectively care for the welfare of individuals. We cannot advocate for species if we can't be seen to take care uh, of the welfare of individuals. And you, you, I don't know if you know, and I can, I, I don't know if you share links. I can yeah, yeah. Some links to some, to some papers where, what really interesting piece of research that we, we undertook a welfare audit across an entire major wildlife attraction. And we, and so we had three different methods of assessing the welfare performance of each of each habitat. We had one that was based around a holistic welfare assessment using five broad braced uh, welfare criteria. We had one where the veterinary team developed their own. What did they, what did they feel they need to to manage welfare? And then we asked the visitors whether animals in this environment were happy and whether they were healthy and whether they enjoyed them. And the results were absolutely fascinating. And we went to a huge amount of effort to ensure that this wasn't just people randomly pressing buttons. They had to get three questions right about each habitat before we even considered their opinion-based mm. assessments. We discovered there was a super strong relationship between the holistic welfare assessment and visitor perceptions of animal welfare. Mm. 
we found there was a super strong relationship between the holistic welfare assessment and the visitors enjoyment of those habitats mm. we actually found there was an inverse relationship between um the the veterinary team's perceptions of what they needed to provide good welfare and the holistic perceptions of welfare and the visitor perceptions of welfare and again this reinforces this this tension between you know understandably a, a huge complex multi-species multi-individual environment is an environment in which it's much harder for vets to monitor maintain and intervene in terms of healthcare. but they're great environments for providing animal psychological opportunities and I first proposed this tension between physical and psychological priorities in the in the yeah mid mid 2010s, and uh, this was the manifestation of that in in data. So what we what we showed with this big holistic assessment, just getting back to that, is that the general public, I believe, have an intuitive understanding mm. of of animal welfare and we ignore their opinions at our, our, at our peril and i think sometimes um yeah I, 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 and, and so i think we often animal welfare can be seen to be a cost oh you know in the same way that i you know the, it's it's something that we have to cater for. It's like a burden, and I'm not talking everyone. I'm talking about at an institutional level. It's it's often something you have to fight for. It's something that you have to defend. You have to protect. And I like the reason I love this research is for me it shows it's an opportunity mm. because animal welfare shapes visitor enjoyment, and visitor enjoyment is what drives revenue, and that's what drives revenue for the zoos to do what, what they need to do. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's so true. It's, it's very easy. Uh, well, it's not always easy, but it's, it's, it's something that, you know, that's our big sort of secret sauce of zoos is like, we're really able to connect. Uh, people really want to connect with individual animals. And when they do, like, it's, it's incredibly, incredibly powerful. Like I was just doing a podcast with, um, uh, uh, some some folks from uh, a, a essentially a lobbying organization for uh, like ending greyhound racing in in the United States, and like they were able to really capitalize on the same thing. You know, take they were able to take like the stories of individual dogs that had been adopted out of that industry and use a legal team a fraction of the size of this like yeah. billion dollar industry because they were able to connect bipartisan you know, uh, congressmen from, from both sides of the spectrum to individual animals and sort of, uh, you know, achieve victory there. And it's a model that, that absolutely works in, in practice. And it's one that we should really be focusing on for sure. Yeah. I mean, and it's something that we can do that no one else can and, and captive breeding is the other. And I, again, I just want to touch on this yeah, absolutely. as well, because it's, it's, you know, it's, you'll hear a lot of, um anti-zoo organizations uh many of whom i work with so again i'm a, a slightly yeah. weird kind of position um and like i say i do absolutely operate at this interface but they will criticize zoos on um the lack of success on on reintroduction but actually 
if you look at the data and there was a great paper which again i can dig out the link for mm. um there was a great paper that showed uh, the reason there aren't that many examples of um reintroduction success it's because there aren't actually many examples of definitive examples of success but actually when this this group of scientists looked at species that had definitively been saved from uh extinction it was it was it was over a half and, and edging around the two-thirds for both mammals and birds that had relied in part upon captive breeding uh to to ensure their, their survival and so we we need to you know be far more kind of cognizant of, of the unique role that we have and with a million species at risk of extinction and the whole growing in the rewilding mo movement and i i think the ability of zoos to provide future generations options for rebuilding ecosystems is very powerful but we are, we will not get there we will not provide the next generation the resources they need in which to deliver that conservation impact unless we can take our communities uh with us and we cannot take our communities with us if we can't address fundamental welfare concerns and you know what's happened in north america in in regards to cetacean there's a classic example of that you know, in in the UK, cetaceans were phased out in the in the late 80s due to mm. rising public concerns. The, it was very interesting that the trajectory of cetaceans in the UK compared to North America, and that you know, government scientists, NGOs, the industry kind of got together, standards are agreed, and the sector decided, you know, we we can't do that and they voluntarily phase them out similar with polar bears but actually with polar bears they were phased out of urban zoos and all transitioned to wildlife parks where you know the average enclosure is you know literally hundreds of times bigger than the ones that went before and, th and that mm. social license has been maintained such that you know uk tiny little country the average the smallest polar bear habitats in the uk are probably bigger than any in a any aza zoo mm. because it's so there's different responses um you know in these examples and i think what what was unfortunate about the, the issue of cetaceans in in north america is that it just became a zero-sum game dialogue where concerns were raised that you know what the welfare is not great and the industry said everything's fine yeah and then it sought to seek the evidence to demonstrate everything's fine rather than actually because let's face it this all kicked off after blackfish so around 2013 2014 mm -hmm. That's 35 years after the same issues emerged in the UK. Mm. There has been three and a half decades in which the, the guys who run, you know, these big dolphin area and, and orca facilities had the time to actually start thinking, that's an early warning. Are we phasing this species out? Are we doing something fundamentally different? But it was three and a half decades of status quo. And in my opinion, the inevitability was was that collapse in, in goodwill and everything mm. that, that's come with that. And I think that's another 
you know, strong belief in mind. Zoos can't hide from the welfare challenge. They need to yeah. embrace it. It's the and, and be honest about it. Transparency is, is essential. You know, our our kind of welfare audit framework, we actually we have a, a one of the really powerful things about this this framework that we use to audit facilities is actually it collates a whole bunch of data. Uh, you know, it's multiple people feeding into that, covering, you know, five key facets. And each habitat is this is assigned a value. It's assigned a score that allows that to be compared with different facilities for different species and also compared over time. Now, I could foresee a, a time where zoos actually um, provided these scores at their, at their habitats. Mm. You know this this one's under this one's below our average this is the steps we are taking to address that yeah certainly in my experience at, at calgary zoo being transparent about where the challenges are and honest in uh you know that, that these things can't be fixed overnight was quite transformative and i found you know the public very receptive to that i think they want they want to trust you and they want to know that you're heading in the right direction Mm -hmm. And for a lot of reasons, there are a lot of people amongst our stakeholder group that don't trust zoos, and that that's a problem. Yeah. Well, yeah. Well, and that's a product of those sort of black and white arguments, like you were talking about. Like when 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 the animal rights groups say like we can't have zoos, we need to let all these animals out, and the zoos say no, everything's totally fine over here like that, that, that's a zero sum game, as you said, and that creates uh, like terrible um, rifts in, in society when it comes to talking about those things, because yeah. they want you to take a side. And, and, and I think, you know, so that, like I say, there's this recent paper that's shown that four species of marine mammals live as long mm. as they do in the wild. And it's, it's, it, it I think it just misses the point. Mm. And I think the public are not, so stupid that they don't get that you can have a long miserable life in a zoo yeah the zoo, the, the, let's be clear the, the the thing zoos and captive facilities are great at is is protecting physical health we can eliminate you know random events we can eliminate mm. predation we can eliminate starvation you know we we as a minimum keeping animals are, are, are alive longer than they do in nature is a given but that doesn't mean to say everything else is okay, and and invariably it's not. And so this is another thing that again I don't know if we've had time to kind of go into, but we I developed this this concept of peak welfare rather than good welfare because good welfare is just is meaningless. Mm. That's not mm -hmm. a good smell. You can't define yeah. a smell as good because what is your good and my good and it, so, mm -hmm. but peak welfare is is a tangible physical not physical it's 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 a conceptual point at which the relationship between our ability to provide for an animal's physical needs uh are, are optimized in relation to to their their impact upon psychological opportunities there is this tension there's this as you know the simpler smaller environments or the fewer individuals in it are the best way to de-risk. So if we consider a goldfish in a bowl, 
we can monitor the water quality, the food that goes in. It's not going to get predated. It's not going to get uh, injured. It's not going to catch a disease. That is the, you know, it encapsulates that maximal physical de-risking environment. Mm. We take that to one goldfish from a in a in a in a, in a glass bowl to one goldfish amongst several hundred in a big pond in which herons may come in, in which, you know, it may randomly dry out every 30 years or freeze over or whatever. Our ability to provide and, you know, so it can be predated, it can go without food, et cetera, it can catch diseases, you name it. Our ability to protect the physical well-being of that animal are, are really, really challenging. But that environment, where the animal is more reliant upon its environment than it is upon direct human inputs, that is where the animal's psychological opportunities are optimized. So in looking at the relationship between these two, what we need to be aiming for is this point of peak welfare, where we maintain as much of those physical safeguards as we can whilst also identifying those aspects of um, the animal's behavioral ecology that are crucial to its welfare. And so it's not replicating, for example, the predation that might be available in a pond. Whilst that's natural, it doesn't necessarily contribute to good welfare. And so, and again, that's where Orpis comes in. It enables us to, you know, mm. to target those things that, that, that have the biggest impact. And, and I genuinely believe that, you know, given that um, most animals in the wild die before they reach adulthood, and that doesn't need to be the case in captive environments, for sure, if we can combine the good that we can do in terms of de-risking and protecting physical well-being, and provide animals with the psychological opportunities that matter, I think we can actually provide a higher standard of welfare than most animals experience in nature, given the fact that most don't actually live that long. But simply increasing longevity and captivity is not the way to go about that. And mm. to pretend it is, is, is doing, I believe, animals and the industry a disservice, mm -hmm. because I, I don't think it washes with the public. Yeah. No, absolutely. Yeah. I, uh, you know, I, I think we've covered a lot of, you know, fascinating sort of direction for the future. And, and I'm really excited that, uh, you know, we have people like you and, and people like, uh, care for the rare, um, you know, working on these things and thinking about these things. I'm really excited to see some of the developments that, uh, come out of that. Um, where can people sort of, uh, you know, keep up with what you guys are doing and, and keep up with you? Well, I'm, I'm not necessarily the best of social media, but, but definitely LinkedIn and our, our website, www.carefortherare.com. If any of your and, uh, listeners have experience working with lions, we are mm. African lions. We're undertaking an African lion orpis assessment at the moment with a view to um, – developing some innovative facilities in South Africa at the Four Paws Sanctuary at Lions Rock. But again, also we're looking to use that to provide a framework with which we can um, provide a framework for the, the South African government to start um, uh, 
doubling down on a lot of these uh, lion breeding facilities and canned mm. hunting facilities and actually having a, a far more rigorous uh evidential basis to 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 establish welfare priorities so that's currently ongoing uh if and that will be ongoing for the next two or three weeks so mm. if anyone wants to participate in that then please ping us an email at uh info at careforthereare.com excellent and we'll, we'll hook you up yeah the more the metal yeah that's great yeah and i will uh link all of the you know the sort of uh, resources that we've talked about and and some of the papers that uh, we talked about in the show notes so people can check that out. And, and I encourage people to, to look at Care for the Rare and, and your LinkedIn. It's uh, I'll link those. They're fantastic. Um, yeah. So, uh, Jake, thank you so much uh, for making the time today. And it was uh, so interesting talking to you. I think there's maybe some more podcasts in our future. I think there was lots that <laughs> left to touch on there, but yeah, definitely. I mean, uh, you know, each each one of the species we've assessed, there's a podcast in talking about yeah. what matters and how we can go about kind of addressing those needs. Mm-hmm. Uh, certainly, I think once we are, once the tiger project is up and running and we're starting putting tigers in that landscape, I mean, that's going to be, um, that's going to be pretty special. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I'm trying to think of, uh, you know, a, a, a bigger kind of quantum leap in how we kind of care for animals. And mm-hmm. I, I genuinely, I, I can't think of one. You know, we are genuinely looking at replicating the functional complexity of the world in a captive space. Yeah, that's going to be amazing. But for a big predator, let's face it, you know, mm-hmm. not we're not talking about a crayfish. We, yeah. we, we do it for crayfish and, yeah. and poison arrow frogs quite effectively, but for these big iconic animals, which are double jeopardy species, another little thing that I never got time to talk about, but you know, one of the things we're seeing, the species that are at risk of extinction in wild are also tragically more prone to welfare problems in captivity, these wide ranging yeah. species. There's less and less space for them. They mm-hmm. compete more and more. Big, wide-ranging animals are more predisposed to, to both welfare challenges and extinction in the wild. And again, I see so often in the literature, we our elephants don't do well in zoos, therefore we need to phase them out. And none of the kind of counter will then... Mm. And maybe elephants aren't the best example, but certainly, you know, tigers and other, you know, carnivorous species that do have challenges in captivity but absolutely these captive populations may become fundamental to their long-term survival in the wild mm-hmm. we need to bring those two things together and you know one shouldn't be just let's shut the door down on the conservation angle it should be an even stronger impetus mm. for us to, to look to solve those those conservation challenges yeah and again you'll you'll get the picture that there are millions of tangents that we could go off Mm -hmm. one of the other interesting things that we haven't yet tested but we we hope to do so in the not too distant future is working with some of the australian species that are you know bred for release using orpis as a as a framework not just to provide better welfare for these animals as they're they're as they're being bred for release, but also to more effectively prepare them for survival upon mm, release. Because yeah. if they are, if they are, you know, if the, these environments and management systems cater for the opportunities that are of high evolutionary significance, we're priming them for release. 
you know mm. so again it's just yet another example of where animal welfare is a foundation for conservation not just a consideration mm -hmm. yeah no that's uh yeah it's fascinating and you know if people want to learn more about some of these uh topics uh definitely uh check out the links below uh careforthererare.com uh all super uh useful um you know you have some great services as well as great resources on that website so definitely uh uh, worth checking them out. But uh, Jake, thank you so much for making the time. And uh, I, I really, really appreciate it. We covered some really interesting uh, ground there. And I look forward to uh, talking in the future. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I loved it. Yeah. So uh, and uh, to everyone listening, uh, until next time. Thank you. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed that episode of the Wild Enrichment Podcast. If you want to follow us on social media, you can find us at Wild Enrichment on Instagram, Facebook, and Pinterest. If you want to learn more about Wild Enrichment and see some of our great resources, check out www.wildenrichment.com. Also, if you wish to support Wild Enrichment, check out our Patreon. Again, thank you so much for listening. Until next time. Wild Enrichment is independently owned and claims no affiliation to any zoo, aquarium, or other animal care institutions. All of the information and opinions communicated through this podcast, wildenrichment.com, and affiliated social media accounts are based on my own opinions and experiences and are not in any way reflective of the opinions of my employers past or present. Thank you. Thank you.